Hey on the call listeners, this is Jeremy Neff, and I'm here with my colleague Pam Leist. We'll get to the episode soon, but we want to share a quick announcement first. Jeremy and I are excited to share that we will once again be speaking at the LRP National Institute, this time in Savannah, Georgia, on May 5th through the 8th. Conference is really a fantastic opportunity for school education professionals like yourselves to come together and share insights and knowledge. Jeremy and I are honored to be speaking at the National Conference for the third year in a row. My session is Can You Keep a Secret? Navigating Confidentiality under IDEA 504 and FERPA. I'll be sharing practical tips for keeping your teams compliant with these laws. After leading a session for school attorneys on lessons learned from COVID, my topic for the National Institute is successfully mapping the exit from IDEA services. I'll discuss the different ways a student ends eligibility and how to ensure that's a successful transition. These sessions promise to be insightful and practical as always, and we always offer actionable takeaways you can implement in your schools. If you want to learn more about the National Institute, you can find a link in the show notes for the newest on-the-call episode or go to lrpinstitute.com. Pam and I hope to see you there in Savannah. Until then, enjoy this episode of On the Call. Anna Britton, how can I help you? Hi, I am glad you answered. I think we've got a big problem. Uh-oh, what's going on? I just got a call from one of our teachers uh, during a virtual IEP meeting. She was um, starting to share her screen so everyone could see the IEP edits in real time. Uh, as soon as she shared her screen, the parents pointed out that the teacher had left a sidebar showing that listed other students who have IEPs stored in the program. Oops. Yeah, the parents said they heard their child's name was shown in a different family's meeting, and now they say they're going to sue us. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, it it sounds like we need to clean up our screen sharing, um, but we can work through this. Let's talk about next steps. Welcome to On the Call. Ennis Britton Special Education Team Podcast. I am Erin Westendorf-Fortman. And I am Jeremy Neff. And we are ready to dig into this call. Okay, well, you know, we've all gotten this call and it doesn't feel good. You know, if, if there is anything that's true about educators, and I say this as the proud descendant of a long line of educators, um, they are rule followers. The FERPA police are coming. Yeah, exactly. This parent says, I'm reporting this, and it's terrifying. I, I, can, I can see the look on the faces of someone in that meeting and, and that sinking feeling in their chest of, oh, God, what have I done? It's not the end of the world. There are no FERPA police. No FERPA police. No FERPA prison. No, and, no. and honestly, there is uh, secrets out of the bag on this one. There yeah. is no financial damage to a FERPA violation. Yeah, unless the feds withhold your funding, which is unlikely, but no, no one can sue you. There's not a private right of I would action, imagine right? it would be a giant, giant data breach that would have to result in the feds getting involved to look at taking a district's funding. And even then, we are so pro from a federal level public education that I can't imagine them saying, school district, I'm withholding your funds. It's probably going to be a follow these actions in the future, and I will keep funding you. Yeah. And this isn't to say that we don't take this seriously. Of course we do. It's just a matter of when we get these calls, like people are in full on panic mode. Mm -hmm. 
So, well, so if the law doesn't include this right to the parent to sue you, what 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 does it say about? I mean, it, it says you can file a complaint, and who wants to also be when looking at a FERPA complaint filed with the student? Oh, it's SPPO, Student Privacy Price. Policy Office, with the U.S. Department of Education, formerly known as. Are you ready? The FPCO instead of the SPPO. Family Policy Compliance Office. I want to envision that there's like a symbol it was also formerly known as, you know, or something like that. I don't know. Or maybe it becomes a symbol one of these days instead it's of It's not a name. Prince. You're just, it's not, no. Uh-uh. All the music references in these uh, pods recently, I don't really know what to do with them. But, yeah. you know, at least you're skipping generations now yeah. in, in what Eclectic they're doing. tastes here. <laughs> but FERPA, I love a good FERPA because it's fun for me, right? And, and wait, what's FERPA? Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act? Good job. Thanks. Uh-huh. Bravo, bravo. Um, but it does protect the privacy of students' education records and any sort of personally identifiable student information that comes from those education records. To be an education record, just to be clear, it has to be a record directly related to the student and is maintained by the educational agency or institution or by a party acting on behalf of that agency. So anyone employed by the school district that has a record maintaining or I'm sorry, directly related to a student could be holding an education record at that point. And and that word maintain is a really interesting one that we're not going to be able to fully explore in this episode. But do consult your own legal counsel as far as what they think it constitutes to what constitutes maintaining a record. But with that, then students and parents have rights under FERPA to look over what records that are maintained by a district about a student and what those are. And that means parents and students have a right to access the student's education records. They have a right to seek to have records amended, which is through a whole hearing process. And or they have the right to have some control over the disclosure of information. And there's a whole host of exceptions that exist. So essentially it is your information shall not be disclosed unless the parent or student once they're 18 have the given you consent to go ahead and disclose that. Certain very basic exceptions meaning, you know, um, directory information being one of them, right, is fairly simple. We can also disclose to those um, – School officials with a legitimate educational interest. I mean, those are with a, an interest, though. That's that's an important distinction there too. Again, this is not a, a a FERPA in general episode. This is FERPA and special education law, but that is an important one because you know I've encountered in my career uh, a district where there was the five hundred four binder. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, this is the binder where we have the information on all the 504, the kids that are on 504s. I'm like, well, who has this binder? Well, all the teachers get a copy of the binder. I'm like, well, why does the third grade teacher need to know about the ninth grade kid on a 504? So then there should be a legitimate educational purpose. Same goes if there's a, even a member of the Board of Education. Like, why would you need this information? That sort of thing. So. Well, and as you just said, I think part of the reason why we are a little bit not dipping our toe into FERPA, but maybe going knee deep into the waters because it does have such an implication within IDEA. And IDEA specifically references the requirement to hold this information confidential, right? And so with that, I think a lot of the same exceptions apply. So you have an exception for when subpoenas are given or um, health and safety emergencies, all of those pieces, which I know health and safety we talk about with regard to threat assessments. So I know we did dig into that. But at least with regard to IDEA, I bounced around a little bit there, but with regard to IDEA, you have the same, if not similar, 
requirements to hold that information confidential. And, and I think the reason, one reason that it's specifically referenced in IDEA is that this is especially sensitive information because it's one thing to have a rule, right? I mean, there's a speed limit on the highway and everybody ignores it. Um, it's it's a different thing, though, when it's especially sensitive. So I think of IDEA is like the construction zone of student uh, records, mm-hmm. right? Where like there, it's pretty serious if somebody... Um, you know, really private medical information. You know, there's there's a lot of emotions. There's it's a pretty heavy topic for some families. So that's why this is a likely area you might encounter a FERPA complaint. Whereas there might be violations all over the place, people speeding down the highway. Mm-hmm. But this is an area that you might actually get that complaint. Well, and I think it's important to be aware then of of having the ability to parse out who is a school official with a legitimate educational interest in having that information, right? I mean, you can have students who are on IEPs where their bus driver doesn't need to know one thing about their IEP. They don't need to know that student is anyone other than who that student is. But there are other students who their bus driver needs to know a lot about maybe the student's behavior plan, maybe the student's uh, functional behavior assessment even, finding out what their health plan is, maybe they have a seizure disorder. I mean, there can be certain instances where that bus driver has a need to know, which I view as that legitimate educational interest. Absolutely. A need to know tied to their ability to do their job. It is not just them wanting to dig in, who is that punk kid that leaves three doors down and he's been terrorizing or she's been terrorizing the neighborhood and I want to know what wrong with that kid right these things happen right but that does the the latter does not give them the ability to go in and look at that kid's educational record with their ieps their etrs things of that nature school resource officers folks working in the cafeteria there can be a lot of people that um, uh, need at least bits of the information about a child's disability but maybe not all of the information right i mean on the alternative, you could have some instances where we've had situations where, you know, aides within a classroom who are there to support children are only given bits and pieces of an IEP or a behavior plan and not the full thing. Sometimes that's appropriate. I think sometimes that isn't appropriate because if I'm dealing with a kid um, who has a, a full behavior plan and I am an aide who is assigned to that child, I should need to know all of those aspects, including looking at what was the evaluation that got us there so that I can understand more of really the functions behind the behavior that I'm helping to avert, right? And so in looking at all of the the fun that FERPA comes with, it's the other Fs. Maybe this is the season of the F words, Jeremy. (laughs) I like it. Uh, It comes up in a lot of ways, right? I mean, we've been part of situations where similar to the caller, right, where all of a sudden – information pops up on the screen. We're all part of a virtual meeting. Or I even had a situation where I was attending um, a virtual IEP meeting and the school, it was a virtual evaluation meeting and the school psych store opened and the school psych was in her law office and a student came in probably because the meeting was running 20 minutes over and the student was coming in to sit down for an evaluation. And the student came in and the school psych said, well, just go sit over in that corner right there. School psych didn't put on any headphones, didn't do anything. And so the whole course of that conversation was emanating out of the speakers on the computer to a student who had no interest in knowing what was going on. Yeah, another uh, example of the um, 
analog world not translating well to the digital world. And we certainly have encountered a lot of that um, since COVID hit. So a lot of great benefits from those virtual meetings, but we need to rethink how those old rules apply. Before we move into our case law on this one, which is actually just an investigation from the SPPO okay. uh, and a letter of finding from them, uh, it's worth noting that many states, Ohio, uh, where many of our listeners are, but certainly not all of them, uh, has state-specific privacy requirements as well. So it's worth knowing what your state's requirements are because they may go beyond um, what FERPA requires. They're not going to scale back the the scope of FERPA, but they may go beyond what FERPA well, requires. And I like Ohio's because it protects personally identifiable student information. And when you look at pieces that are personally identifiable, it can be more than a whole record. A name, pronouns, certain identifiers just with – or descriptors, I guess I should use. Like if you're talking about an email, it could talk about how, you know, Aaron limped down the hallway that afternoon. Well, okay, that's great. Aaron and the limping might be personally identifiable, right, not just my name. And so I think looking at that from that broader lens is intriguing, at least from the perspective of what is really protected and what are people allowed to have access to. Absolutely. Well, speaking of which, uh, so we've got a, a letter. This is a letter to Harrington. It's from January of 2022, and that's going to be relevant, the date on this one. And again, this is from the Student Privacy Policy Office. Bravo. Thank you. And uh, what had come to their attention was a complaint from a parent where a district had sent a letter, and the date here is key, October 6, 2020. So uh, I don't all, want to go back. There. Yeah, I don't want to go back there either, but we have to. So this was in this case, I believe, was out of Michigan. Uh, I could have the state wrong on it, but it was a state that was um, not on the forefront of reopening for in-person learning. And so this October 6th letter or an email was sent by the special ed department of this district sent to all the parents of students with special needs regarding a workshop helping parents with some counseling and training for what was described as the upcoming school year. So that's where we're starting to read between the lines. We don't get all the details on this, but we're reading between the lines. And this is a district that has maybe remained on remote learning longer than others, understands that its parents need some help. Kids were struggling. Kids still are struggling, right? And so they sent out this email. They're doing the good thing. And this is how educators get in trouble, right? Like it's rare that we have the like evil doer. They're doing the good thing here, trying to support their families. The problem was attached to that email was a spreadsheet with the names of all the students with disabilities, the names of their parents and their contact information. And that got sent out as an attachment. And you can imagine oh. it was probably, yeah, it was probably a draft that uh, had been circulated internally. Hey, this is who we're going to send it to attached as a list with all the people it goes to. And that attachment was never removed. Well, and it's an attachment that said, here are the people who get services. So you have just called out a whole host of parents and students who receive counseling and, and training services. And I don't know. I mean, maybe they care about being – some parents probably didn't care. I, good for me. I'm getting the training. It just takes I one. It, but it, yeah, it just took one. No good deed here, man. No good deed. Yeah. So what the district did then is is what? They, they hid this away? No. They went ahead and they were like, oh, no. They saw their error and were like, whoop, reverse, reverse. Immediately corrected the error as best they could, right? I mean, I would imagine in this case, if we're talking to this district, if it's one we represent, we're going, try to recall the email if you can, if you've noticed it the second after it goes out. If you cannot recall it, send an email out at, to the same group of people asking them to destroy whatever 
word they got, an inadvertent disclosure has happened, right? Apologize for the error, and then we go through retraining of our staff. I mean, yeah. I think that's the best that you can do in those moments. And from the SPPO standpoint, they seem to agree with it. Yeah, they they were really pleased with what the district did. So they received this complaint. They looked at it and said, gosh, what more could we do? You know, in the law world, we'd say, well, it's kind of moot, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's nothing to be ordered here. You can't, you know, there's no time machine. There's no Superman flying, you know, in reverse around the globe. <laughs> no? Too, no, old, too no. old of a reference? Yeah, no, that's the old. Remember Lois? Like, she died, right, or something? And then he had to fly. Are you talking like old school Superman? Like the, the first movie. The old school. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so he flew oh, I haven't seen any of the new ones. The new no, ones aren't new anymore, are they? No, the new ones are not new anymore. Okay. Yeah. So, so bad. Um, Christopher but- Reeves, Superman. <laughs> that one. <laughs> wow. All right. Moving on. But I do think it's important to know what the SPPO said in this letter to Harrington was that we require districts that violate FERPA to provide written assurance that school officials have been trained on FERPA requirements. So the district went back and reviewed its policies and procedures and trained them, right? I would hope, though, also maybe just in my head, they probably put on, I don't know, a 30-second delay or a three-minute delay in email sending so that things can be recalled when you have those moments. I mean, those that has saved me from looking like an idiot on at least a half a dozen occasions this week. <laughs> yeah, absolutely the same. I definitely do the delay email. So, you know, kind of we're traipsing into the practical tips here, Sorry. I think. And no, I, I think it makes sense. I think that's sense. important, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, go ahead. Because as, as technology can get us in trouble, like the example you gave of we're doing a remote meeting and the kid walks into the back of the room, which that wouldn't have happened if everyone was sitting in a room. Uh, together. So technology can get us in trouble. It can also save us a bit. So let's use technology in an intelligent way. And one is, yeah, to me, there is no email I send that needs to go out immediately. Everything's on a 30-second delay. I think it's important to do so. It allows you to call back and be like, oh, did I put that attachment on there that I meant to? Or, you know, at least our email system goes, you said you attached something. You didn't. Did you mean to grab something? Uh, That's helpful from my perspective. Absolutely. But also then in labeling documents that you need to go out or not to go out when they do have more of a protected information in them so that you can say this is the redacted safe version. This is unredacted. So when you're saving them at a capacity that helps to label the documents accordingly, all of that, I think, does help in at least curbing not, you know, unintentional mistakes in the future. If you will, I do even think going back to my example earlier, that one went to a state complaint. So it didn't go up to the federal level. It went to our Department of Education in the state. And from what the state said in that regard was, hey, next time, if you have these moments where you are having virtual meetings, do what you can to lock a door. I know we don't like to lock doors or to put signs on the outside of the door. Do not enter in a meeting, you know, check back, I will come check with you almost like a sign-in sheet. So mixing the worlds of the digital and hard copy paper worlds together so that it can work. Or even headphones. I mean, headphones would have saved that moment because I the school psych would have known with a student in her office not to say things about um, maybe the student by name within the meeting. Right. Well, and I think your example there is great because it shows – you mentioned earlier that FERPA is effectively incorporated into IDEA. It's mm-hmm. specifically identified in there. What that means, though, is 
parents don't have to go to SPPO. So we've said, hey, look, there's no private right of action. Don't worry about it. They're not going to sue you. And the feds aren't going to yank your funding. They're just going to tell you to fix things. But parents have access to all that IDEA offers in terms of an administrative review, a formal complaint to your state department of education, theoretically even a due process complaint, although it's hard to imagine the circumstance that a privacy violation results in a denial of FAPE. But all the same, nobody wants to deal with it. You don't want to pay to have that argument. So it is important to note that while, yes, SPPO is technically in charge of FERPA, there are other ways for parents of kids with disabilities to challenge privacy violations. So talking more then about, okay, so what do you do when it happens? Uh, own up to the mistakes. And that's what this district did here uh, in our example. They right away moved to inform the parents. They um, it did some additional training for their staff, things like that, posting a notice for your staff, reminding them of obligations. Maybe, you know, to use your example, um, giving specific direction, put a sign now. This is a new thing we're going to do. All of those efforts aren't just good to protect student privacy, but they're, they showed the good faith that if someone files a complaint with SPPO or uh, files a complaint using one of the idea processes, you've shown you've already taken some steps on that. So those are great. And and I would say specifically to the technology, I've been in a lot of meetings lately where it's not even just that a kid walks in the background in you know real world space, but maybe we're doing a screen share mm -hmm. and the program we use where all the IEPs is, I, IEPs is, IEPs <laughs> are, um, there's a list of all the students with yep. IEPs running down the left side of the screen. Oh, crap. Hide those sidebars, right? Yeah. I think you have to or stop screen sharing until you get the document pulled up that you need. Because otherwise, you do have that inadvertent release. And granted, they are just student, not just, but they're student names, arguably directory information. But in those meetings, they're also identified within those programs where you're writing IEPs, whatever program it is, you've just identified them as students with disabilities who need an IEP. And so it's not just directory information at that point, right? Because you can see a list of every kid in the school in a yearbook, right? It's the fact that they're within this program now that shows they have IEPs, they are a student with a disability who requires specially designed instruction. And that aspect, I think, is more the protection that really IDEA is meant for in that regard. Absolutely. And and I think also just the message it sends to the parent that's on that meeting, even if they don't say anything, they're not going to file a complaint. You've, you've just added a little bit of distrust there that may burn you in some completely unrelated way. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so all sorts of reasons that we want to protect this. Just a couple more thoughts. I, I think before we talked about the case, you'd identified, you know, bus drivers might need mm -hmm. to know a little bit of something. Having some sort of standard way that the team, maybe it's just a standard process at this moment in the team meeting we talk about, who needs to know what outside of this? And, you know, you can see it go really sideways on buses because that driver's out there, you know, literally out there far away from the district and something happens and they don't know what to do. That's a problem. Um, so we do want to affirmatively share information when it's appropriate. The school resource officer that might encounter a kid in the hallway who's allowed to go take that break when they're starting to get a little anxious, and instead of getting the release of that break, gets cuffed by a, a, an SRO, we've seen it happen. That can be hugely problematic. Well, and that's a not a double-edged sword, but the other side of that coin, right, is having the conversation with the parent, which is what you just said about who – who do we reasonably think has a legitimate educational interest in knowing some of these pieces about the student? But then also the other side of it, and I hate to say training, 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 but it's training, right? And I think the one 
thing that you will hear you and I say constantly is documentation and training, mm-hmm. always. But the training aspect for the bus drivers, for the SROs, for the aides, for the cafeteria workers, whoever those school officials are that have that legitimate educational interest, it's important for them to understand why they have this access to that information and what they can do with it and what they cannot do with it. Because the the can and the cannot are really important so that they don't go around. And I hate to pick on the, the transportation, but I will. Sorry, my grandfather drove a bus for a number of years after he retired from being a firefighter. So at least I have some, I don't know, some credence in that, but also I'm not dogging on I'm not dogging on the bus drivers. But when they go back to the transportation garage, sometimes the amount of conversation that happens in and among the drivers that could be complaining about a student maybe with a behavior need can get concerning with regard to how we're dealing with that FERPA protected information. So having the training, having the purposeful conversations of understanding the who, what, when, where, and why is a good idea for those levels of staff. Absolutely. Well, with that, circling back to our caller then, uh, you know, the first thing which you heard at the beginning of this episode was don't panic, right? Don't panic. Uh, but do uh, quickly think about how do you own that mistake? How do you make it right without a time machine? And then, um, you know, really consider specific to that caller where the parent sounded pretty heated about this. Consider how much time you devote to trying to pacify that parent versus how much time you devote to the more broad question of uh, compliance moving into the future. Mm-hmm. I really want an alarm like that wee woo wee woo for FERPA police. I really want to somehow find a way to insert that. But having those issues, being able to sort of look internally, if you will, navel gaze to go, okay, I'm owning my mistake. Here's how we make it better, right? Those are the best ways that we can work to move forward to avoid the FERPA and IDEA confidentiality provisions in the future. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us. A quick note, this podcast is intended to be used for general information only and is not legal advice. If you have a specific question, please consult an attorney. Be sure to check out other episodes at ennisbritton.com or wherever you find your podcasts. If you have a topic you would like to suggest, a question about today's episode, or anything else you'd like to share, please email us at podcast at ennisbritton.com. Whether by phone or this podcast, we look forward to being on the call with you again soon.